and welcome back to Fully Equipped. Jonathan Ball here, joined by a couple of my favorite guys, Ryan Brath, Chris McCormick, the robotic one, Gene Prenti. He is dropping his daughter off at college. I even know Gene was old enough to have a daughter going into college, but hey, congratulations to her. Boys, what, how are we what doing? do you mean you didn't know that he was old enough to have it? I figured he'd be dropping off his granddaughter. Oh, wow. <laughs> Gene's not even here to uh, to defend himself from the mortar fire that he's now taking. Oh, but, exactly. If he's not here, he's getting roasted. RB, how are we doing? I'm good. Uh, unlike Gene, though, my next uh, my next couple weeks will be dropping off my oldest at senior kindergarten. So a little bit of a divide there. <laughs> little, still little still little. a tough moment. <clears throat> Can I just say that Gene posted the best video in our group chat? Yes. Yes, he did. So you all know by now, if you've listened to this wonderful podcast, we're now into episode 154, that we were stringing Gene along, dangling that wonderful carrot, which was the rock form speaker, and it turned into this glorious bit. And finally, out of nowhere, Coach brings the rock form to San Diego when RB and I were there. And I thought jeans in hog heaven. You heard the last episode. He was psyched to have that speaker. Then he sends a video of his daughter holding the speaker saying, thanks for getting my dad that speaker. And I thought that's kind of weird. I mean, how did you talk your, your, you know, now college age daughter into doing this video? And then he drops the little bit of knowledge that she wanted to keep the speaker. So as part of the deal, she had to record the video and then it all made sense. All made sense. But I mean, it's a birdie juice speaker. It's cool. It's fun. And obviously conversation starter with birdie juice logos on the, uh, on the front of it. I, think I, like, think, I like the magnet idea of it. You can, I mean, you can stick it anywhere. I always think that's kind of the cool. She was doing that the right? last time. That is the best part. I just think that Gene wanted to give it away, so now he can go back to complaining about not having a speaker. Now he's a martyr. Yeah, he's a martyr. Always has been. Always will be. Is there anything going on in the golf world right now? Anything? Doesn't feel like there's much. There's much going on. Okay, how much time do we have? So we've got uh, (laughs) Rory and Tiger launching their own indoor simulator golf league arena spectacular uh separate of the pga tour uh which is one thing you've got um new pitch Did you hold hold on though let's let's start with this this new rory tiger league this team league um that's going to be called the tgl it's in partnership with the pga tour it's going to have six three-man teams does this sound very familiar to anybody three team team events uh, shot makers um, from golf channel. Yeah, that's the one I was, that's the one I was thinking about RB. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's funny now that this has come out, that the tour is doing this, these three man teams, Greg Norman posted on his social feed, a meme of it's a picture of Norman and, uh, Jay Monahan, commissioner of the PGA tour. And it says, and this is just, again, it's a meme, so it's not really that, that Jay said this, but it says, Jay, in quotations, hey, can I copy your homework? Greg, sure, just make sure it looks different so it doesn't look too obvious. 
and Norman posted it. Love so, it. Yeah, there was somebody that said that maybe, just maybe, throughout through all this, that you could get the Saudi-backed league live in the PGA Tour to finally just come together and figure something out. And you've got Norman now posting this. Somebody asked Jay Monahan if the tour pro, or if the live guys could ever come back, and he said they sued us. They're they're never welcome back. So they don't, you know, their persona non grata on the PGA Tour now. It's just getting it's delicious. Let's just put it that way. I, I love where this is going. It's exactly what Phil Mickelson predicted, except for now Phil doesn't get to reap the riches of what's going to happen with this new PGA Tour, all of these big money events that the top players in the world are going to show up to, this new you know three-on-three league. Um, is this going to be, you know, basketball has like the three-on-three league. It, it just feels like every sport now has has embraced entertainment, and it feels like golf is the last one to do it. But I watched the trailer for this new TGL. It doesn't really show you much except a bunch of like flashing lights and colors, and you know, a picture of Tiger and Rory. But I gotta say, I'm really pumped. I can't feel too bad for Phil. I mean, he took that payday and ran. So. You know, does he miss out on you know essentially the the fruits of his labor per se, starting this whole shitstorm for lack of a better description? Yeah, but he got paid. I mean, he took that payday and ran. Oh yeah. Now the interesting part about this TGL league is it says it's tech infused. Now, are we just talking about the venues, or do you think we see any new gear wrinkles with this new TGL? I mean, Rory and Tiger are both tailor-made guys. I wouldn't imagine that all the guys in this league are going to be tailor-made, but do you think we see the manufacturers embrace this, you know, under the lights in a, in a tech, you know, quote-unquote tech-infused venue? Do you think we see them come up with some new gear just for these events? That's an interesting one. I, th- I think it's more of like the, um, like the launch monitors and stuff like that. I think that's where we have this opportunity. I mean, someone I just saw, I literally just saw this on Twitter before we logged on here. It was someone qualified as a one-off, but someone qualified for the, the DP world tour, European tour event in Switzerland this week playing simulator golf. So <laughs> yeah, true story. Right. So literally I just saw it. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure wow. you can find that out somewhere. But you're saying there's a chance. It's kind of like <laughs> the F1 guys. I mean, the, the F1 has, um, simulator teams, and every once in a while, the guys that that win the simulator cup end up getting getting promoted. So that was it. I remember it was a couple of years ago when they had um, it was like a, an, a professional auto racer versus simulator auto racer, and they had this this cool track where basically like they raced at the same time, but they raced on opposite ends of the track, but they kind of finished near a spot, so they looped around and then they kind of closed up, and everyone thought that the simulator guy was going to get his butt whooped, and he won. Right. And, you know, I think simulator golf from a short game perspective is very unique. And, you know, some of the renderings that we saw show like a bunker and show greens and show these different elements. And I can remember, I think two or well, it'll be three, three or four years ago now at the PGA show, there's the, there's like the putts view, um, like virtual green that shows you the projections and does all this stuff, but it's uh, turning the word it's, it's planar. Right. So like it's, it's flat, it's a flat surface that they tilt. Right. 
I think four or five years ago at the PGA show, somebody, I don't remember who it was, had this like massive platform green that literally created breaks and bumps and humps all over the place. It was really cool. I don't know how much how much the thing cost. It was obviously not for home use. It was probably 40 by 40 feet thing was massive, but, and it cost, I'm sure it cost a fortune if there's actuators and different level, different ways of creating these, these breaks in the green. So from a technology standpoint, I think it's, it's from a, it's more so from a playing perspective, which I think is pretty cool. So, you know, interested to see what this means because, you know, as, as far as simulator technology is concerned, and, and this is across, not just golf, but all sports, what does this mean? And I, I mean, I'm not a big gambling guy, but like, what does this mean for sports gambling? Right? Like if, if they're able to take a, a certain percentage of like, you know, however accurate X launch monitor is and say, okay, this is fine. Like we can attribute this to the models that we create based on uh, like ball flight data and all these other things. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, like we feel comfortable letting people gamble on this. And you're like, okay, well that's, that's another avenue for, for getting eyes to it, which I think is probably, you know, one of the biggest elements of what creates excitement in sport. Not that, and not that it's straight up my alley, but I think for sure, when you talk to a lot of people, I talk to casual golf fans that bet on golf because it's a, it's an opportunity because of the odds and all those things. So this is another avenue. Plus it's a, it's an entertainment thing, which they, they do mention as I, they mentioned in the promo, it was like two hours. Like they literally give you this, I, this idea that it's like, there's like a watch window, which I think is another element of this. That's pretty neat. What do you think professional golf looks like in 10 years? And I don't want to get like too far into to this because we are going to be doing a fully equipped mailbag edition, which I know a lot of people love because we get to a whole bunch of questions and just do rapid fire. But before we get into that, what do you think? What, look into your crystal ball 10 years from now. What does pro golf look like? Any different than the current setup? 72 holes? I think tournament golf stays the same. I, I believe high level tournament golf remains the same, but I think what we'll see is a, a separation of the sport that have it be the PGA tour or whoever, but focusing in on the PGA tour and what they've already done with this, this tiger Rory thing is there's going to be separation for entertainment and that's okay. We see it in motorsport. We see it in a lot of other like avenues. And I think that's, that's something that is, is okay. Um, the only other thing that I can think of would be like, where's our all-star game, right? Like where's, I mean, this, this little like league virtual thing is pretty cool, but like, where's the nine hole all-star game weekend where they have like, just let sponsors go nuts if they were trying to infuse money into the game and all this stuff. So that to me, would be like the only other thing that maybe you'd want to see. I know it existed on golf channels like 10 to 15 years ago, which kind of fluttered out, but you know, what does that mean for the rest of it? Yeah. And if I'm making a prediction, I would, I would assume that tournament golf will make a little bit of a change. I don't know if it's completely going to change the format, but the entertainment component is, in my opinion, probably going to be a little bit more relevant than what it is presently. And I think just seeing some of the the changes outside of the PGA Tour and the current setup is kind of paving the way for a little bit more of an entertainment based, I don't know, platform for tournament golf. So whether that be, you know, doing something maybe like the live and shotgunning players out, having everybody on the golf course at once, cutting down to three rounds, no cut. Uh, I mean, potentially even mixing up more formatting uh, throughout the tour year or the tour schedule. 
I, I don't know, 10 years, that's, that's a lot of time for a lot of changes to potentially take place, especially with kind of what we're seeing right now at the very beginning of, you know, the live movement. And now, you know, people kind of validating the demand for something new, something different. Yeah. All good points. It's going to, I think professional golf in general is going to look completely different than it looks right now. I mean, as you mentioned, we're already seeing it with live and 54 holes and no cut and, you know, shock and start, you know, you're getting kind of this gamification, which is, is the future. I mean, if you're trying to capture the younger audience and get them interested in golf, this, I think this is a, a big first step for golf getting this, you know, three on three team league with, with a lot of tech involved in RBA, as you mentioned, I think it's going to be a, a lot of, you know, launch monitor data and, and things like that. But yeah, I do wonder if, if the OEMs are going to, going to make any changes, but I, it, regardless, I think it's going to be a lot of fun for us because it's going to give us a lot to talk about, but all right, let's get into the mailbag. But before we do, I want to let you know that this episode of Fully Equipped is brought to you by our good friends at Fujikura and the new Ventus TR line. If you don't know Ventus TR, you probably know Ventus, which is the most played shaft on the PGA Tour for two straight seasons. The new Ventus TR has already been used to win two majors in 2022. If you want to know the differences between Ventus and Ventus TR, I will tell you that the Ventus TR is going to be a more stable version. So if you're looking for that additional stability and you really like the original Ventus, then the TR is right up your alley. The big difference between these two versions is the Ventus TR features a new ultralight spread toe fabric that's sourced from Japan that helps reinforce the mid and handle sections of the shaft. That's where it gets that additional stability. Still has the VelaCore that everybody knows and loves from the original Ventus. If you wanna learn more about it and the technology that's involved, Go check it out on Fujikura's website, or if you want to go test them, go check them out at TrueSpec. I think they've got the full line ready to test. Okay. Mailbag time. So we're going to start it off with a fun one. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Somebody wants to know, they're going to be doing a reshafting on their set of irons. And they're thinking about going from steel to graphite. And we've seen some pros on the PGA Tour go and make this change. Uh, Brant Snedeker and Matt Kuchar are two names that come to mind. But they're wanting to know what are some things that they need to consider? What are some of the benefits? Maybe what are some of the drawbacks if you're considering going from steel to graphite in your irons? What do you think, boys? I think the the biggest thing which comes from a like just from a build perspective is just watching your head weights because I mean you know like swing weight in if you leave everything else the same and the head weights stay the same based on using tip weights or whatever it happens to be if you just think of the component as the head weight being the tip weight as well then you don't want to continue to just add weight to that head to get a swing weight up because as you go roughly every 10 grams in shaft weight down you lose points as well so and now balance point there's a lot of other factors involved in that but in general the one thing is you don't want to just make your heads heavy just to make the clubs heavier because you're going to make the shafts feel a lot softer but the other part is as well is just making sure that your you do have consistent head weights within that set just like you would with steel i mean if there's not a huge huge variance as far as what's going to happen between when you build with steel and graphite is just factoring in what that component means. And 
for graphite, it can mean potentially adding maybe a few more grams to the head just to get a swing rate to a certain point, but you never want to go beyond just to make a club hit a certain number on the swing weight scale and have that shaft play very soft to flex, which is not, which it wasn't designed to do in the first place. I mean, the, the weight component is definitely one to be considered. The, the other benefit in my opinion is vibration dampening and also typically a little easier for players to launch graphite. So feel and feedback might be, you know, sacrificed a little bit going to a composite, but the miss hit isn't quite as harsh. And then, like I said, composite shafts are generally a little easier to get in the air. So if it's somebody that's making that change from steel to composite, you know, going that direction, I would anticipate a little higher ball flight, uh, definitely saving a little bit of weight, depending upon what categories you're shifting to. And you can get a composite that's you know, comparable in weight to steel, but more often than not, it's going to be a little lighter than its steel counterpart. And then the, the big benefit for the majority of players is just saving the joints, you know, the wrists and the elbows and kind of transitioning up through the arm. So, I mean, there's pros and cons with it, like RB was talking about as far as swing weight, static weight, and overall feel of the golf club. But then there's also some pros when it comes to just longevity and also ease of play and creating that higher launch profile. Now, speaking of, I did write, I just, I factored this in because I used some of the mailbag questions. So you can go to golf.com. Uh, and I wrote a thing on how to avoid injury with uh, shaft or with golf club components and, and graphite shafts was definitely one there. Cause Chris, you made a really good point about longevity within the game, as well as wrist hand and just joints in general uh, savings, especially for those that either play in really firm conditions people that might have ailments already or someone who maybe practices off mats or is kind of forced to play off mats. It's a, it's a great way to help benefit that. And there's a few more tips within that as well. So you can go check that out at golf.com. Composite shafts when it, and we're just talking specifically with irons have come a long way. You know, the big reason why, I mean, I go back to when Phil Mickelson used uh, when he was on staff with, uh, with Yonix and he used graphite in his irons. I remember watching a Masters. Maybe that was who's ninety-seven. I mean, it's 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 back a ways, ninety-six. And they were Phil was even talking about, and again, the, him being the ultimate pitch man. He played these irons, and he, while even admitting that he just wasn't quite sure about the yardages. You know, sometimes with, with the original graphite in those iron shafts, I mean, you could get a hot one and you're, you're sending it. And for a tour pro, that's not what you want. You're looking for just consistent numbers. And nowadays the materials that they're using, I think about, um, you know, Mitsubishi has the, the MMT iron shafts, Abe Answers use the MMT, great product mimics the steel, steel shafts in a lot of different ways. But as you guys mentioned, the big benefit is you can practice longer with these shafts and there's not as much wear and tear on your body. So I think there are a ton of benefits to, to going to graphite. And again, if you were on the fence before in terms of, well, they're just, you know, when am I going to get that jumper? It's going to come out of nowhere. It's going to go five or six yards longer than I'm expecting now. The, the technology nowadays is so good that they've been able to really tighten up the dispersion and you don't have to worry about that. Your carry yardages that you're going to be getting when you go test with these products are going to be the carry yardages you're going to see out on the golf course. 
I think too, what, what plays into that as well, just like kind of ended off is it, this is where finding a good club builder and a place that you trust that's going to build your golf clubs, right. Always really makes a big difference because especially when we talk about consistency of graphite, they are very good when we talk about all the high end ones, but you know, if you really want to get that extra level and you're looking at making sure product is frequency matched, product is weight sorted, all of these things come into play and you know, you don't really have much issue when it comes to a lot of these high end graphite shafts either way, but you know, all the pros, all the all high level players are going through that process just to make sure. And you know, if you're if you're really concerned, if you are worried for some reason, if you don't think that you know you're still going to see that, which you are not, as as you've said, Jonathan, going through that extra step is just the just the next part of making sure that everything you got in your bag is set. All right, question number two. We've talked a lot about swing weight on this podcast and why you should one understand what swing weight is and two have consistent swing rates throughout your set. So it's going to help with, with the feel. It's going to help with your transition. Uh, a lot of things that maybe you're not quite thinking about. But if you are considering cutting down a golf club, maybe you, you feel like your clubs are a little bit too long. Maybe you just want to try something a little bit shorter. How much can you cut a golf club down before you start to notice a swing weight change? From a from a spec perspective, uh, any amount of change in length will change swing weight. Um, but as far as what the player notices, Chris, I'm gonna I'm gonna default that to you because I think you're probably one that would who works with more players to see what they really notice from a an up and down perspective. Because I find if it's a driver or a longer club, sometimes like half an inch, a lot of players won't notice. But with irons, it's definitely something that most people are going to identify pretty quickly. No, absolutely. And I mean, one thing to keep in mind when it comes to swing weight and even static weight is essentially feel is completely subjective to the individual. Now, in regards to swing weight, which essentially is an arbitrary form of measurement that club builders, club fitters use to uh, basically attach a weighting component to how much a player feels the head through the swing. So during the fitting process, depending upon length and static head weight and bend profile of the shaft, you may test you know, four, five, six, or more different swing weights. Now, the likelihood of a player being able to go, oh yeah, that was a D0 and now I'm swinging a, a C9. Oh, nope, this one's a D1. Likelihood of that occurring during a fitting is slim to none. The majority of us wouldn't be able to take, let's just say, a set of four identical looking golf clubs all built with the same components. The only variance would be swing weight and organize them accordingly to accurately put them in order uh, in regards to swing weight. So swing weight is tied a lot to a player's feel and the relationship that they have with where that club head is through the swing. So it is an arbitrary form of measurement, but it's tied largely to just the feel of the player. So you may have somebody that is already swinging a golf club that has a swing weight that's too high, cutting it down a half inch and dropping roughly three points of swing weight off of the golf club may benefit them. But then the exact same golf club is cut down a half inch and given to another player and it completely ruins their feel and just interpretation of what that golf club is doing through the swing. So it's, it's, I'm always going to default, go get fit. And if you are trying to self-diagnose experiment with you know some lead tape or even adding a heavier grip onto the golf club, if you're considering cutting a club down, 
a heavier grip will move the weight up and down the golf club and make that appearance, or I should say the feel of that golf club lighter. That's a great point. So, so I don't, let me just say, I didn't, I didn't put this question in here before you guys, I'm going to beat you to the punch. So this is, this is not from yours truly, but question number three is, um, they asked, they struggle with fairway woods. What is the best alternative to try and bridge the gap? First thing I would say is a fitting. <laughs> um, as, as you found out, a Titleist, Jonathan, someone who doesn't really get along with fairy woods too well, getting the right specs in a fairy wood can make a big difference rather than just going off the rack sometimes. I think a lot of a lot of three woods, modern three woods now are, you know, I just, I recently built one that I had kicking around and I had to get the head weight up because off the rack, this fairy wood head that I was working with was stock 43 and a half. Not like I, I can play a longer driver, but a three wood, if I can hit it off the deck, it's not going to be great. And I've struggled recently trying to find one that was going to work, but you know, I would say that either a very, depending on your club and speed, a very uh, strong lofted hybrid potentially, or something like the, the Callaway UW, which I know we've, we've talked about a number of times recently, because it is this kind of in between club, which has some pretty cool specs, but you know, that again, that's my take on it. But I think the biggest thing is maybe go get fit to find out what you're what you're really looking at. What do you do, Chris, when someone comes in and they say they can't hit fairywood? I mean, it begs the question as to why. Why yeah. can't you hit a fairway wood? Is it something dynamically that you're doing? Is it a byproduct of just playing the wrong shaft and head combination, like we've talked about before? Because you hate them. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the you look at the the evolution of equipment and everything is cut, spin, cut, spin, cut, spin. So if there's a player that's already low launch, low spin, like myself, putting the majority of 15 or 14 and a half degree lofted fairway woods in my hand, I mean, I struggle to hit that thing over 50 feet in the air. And 3000 RPMs of spin is just a far cry from what I'm able to achieve personally in my game. So I found that, you know, going with, you know, a different static loft, something that is in that 16, 17 degree range. And like RB said, you know, physically building up the static weight of the head and moving that weight away from the face and kind of low and back to help with a little bit more launch and spin has been huge benefit for me. So, I mean, it might be something as simple as you take that same player that struggles with a quote unquote three wood and you put a four or a five wood in their hand, something that has a little more static loft, produces a little more launch and spin, might be a half inch shorter than what they're playing in a three wood. And all of a sudden, you know, the heavens open up and you know, the fairway wood becomes their favorite club in the bag. So, I mean, it's definitely worth a, a fitting and testing different components. But if you are just dead set against fairway wood, I mean, there are so many UDI, DHY type of clubs out there now that are in those stronger lofts that you could you know, potentially find something that has more of an iron type shape if you don't like fairway woods hybrids and still stay in that 16, 17 degree loft range and produce you know, a pretty good second club option from driver. It's like Chris was sitting in on my fitting at TPI. You know, going back to what, RB mentioned about getting a fitter involved and you might be rolling your eyes because we talk about that all the time. I'll give you a real example of why it's important to have a fitter involved. So going back to last year, 
when I visited TPI, you know, I still wasn't playing a three wood. I almost, I can't remember the last time I played a three wood. And one of the things that we looked into, which was in my bag until recently still is, is a Titleist T200 two iron. And it has a, it has a Project X hazardous black um, 6.5 in there. And I hit it probably like off the tee. It's like my 245 club. And it's perfect. I don't really need a three wood. Uh, it's a great club. But when I went to TPI about a month ago, my fitter said, well, that's great. Where do you, where do you play? I said, Texas. It's a perfect club for Texas. He said, but what happens if you go play in Florida or on a softer golf course and you need a club to try and let's say attack a par five, you're going to need a little bit more height and that two iron is not going to give you what you need. So let's try and find you something. And I rolled my eyes and Sure enough, he did exactly what Chris mentioned. He said, well, okay, let's just take three wood out of the equation. Let's try and find a club that's like a 245-er and let's, let's kind of fiddle around with it. And we went to, uh, we went to an 18-degree uh, Titleist fairway wood with a 41-and-a-half-inch shaft, which is like seven wood length. And I started hitting that, and it was like, again – golfers are all just mental and I am, I am right there at the top of the list, but going shorter mentally made me feel more comfortable with that fairway wood in my hands and having that little bit of extra loft was like, all right, I don't have to try and help get this golf club in the air, which has always been something that I've just mentally struggled with, with three wood. And sure enough, I started, I just started ripping this golf club and now I have another option. But I don't even think I would have ever considered, you know, going to 18 and cutting the shaft down and let's try that. But that's where a great fitter comes in because they can help you see things that you otherwise might miss. Those blind spots that you, that you I, I call them gear blind spots, that you might not consider. You need somebody else there to talk you through them or at least have you talk about them out loud and then they can ask questions. So bottom line, yes. 100% get a fitter involved. They'll be able to help you. And who knows, maybe you'll be like me and end up with a second option off the tee. It also, you know, highlights the importance of knowing, know the course conditions you're playing most of the time. If you're like me and you play in Texas and it's dry and, and windy, you, you probably want something that's going to you'll be able to fly it a bit more. But if you live in Florida or some of these other climbs that are a little bit on the, the wetter side and you're having to try and throw a fairway wood in there high and land it soft. That's where you might need a, a higher lofted fairway wood. So just some things to consider food for thought. All right. So question number four, why can't I find a super forgiving set of clubs with fast faces, but traditional lofts? <laughs> Ah, we're back to loft jacking. My favorite topic. Who wants to take <laughs> this one? I mean, I, I can jump on this one. I'll jump on the grenade here. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna Thank say I, I, I feel like Jay Wall was just ready to ready to tackle that topic. Mm, I'm not jumping on this grenade. No thanks. Um this is this is a question I get a lot. And you know, I've I've talked to we've and we you know we were in the, we had this conversation uh, a little while ago. Say, speaking to being a titleist, and a call with Taylor made the other day, and we were kind of joking about it a little bit. But I would say five to ten years ago, probably in that you know 
say seven to 10 years ago, all you'd ever read was, oh, they just made the loft stronger. They just made the loft stronger. That's why they're going further. But what people don't realize is, yeah, but they're also going higher. Can you like think about what that actually means to be able to hit the ball higher with a stronger logic golf club and factoring in multi-layer golf balls and factoring, which, I mean, I say that now, but I mean, they've been around for like pretty close to almost 30 years at this point or 25 years, but you put all of those things together and you're not, if you tried to put a, you know, they call it an eight iron. Now everyone says, Oh, it's an eight iron or seven iron, whatever it is really strong. Like my, my, I think my six iron now is 28 degrees. That used to be considered a five iron and that's playing a, a, a player's cavity iron. Uh, or yeah. So if you think of what that actually means and you were to say, let's spend that iron back to like a traditional six iron loft of say, you know, 32, all of a sudden it's like, wow, I hit it way too high. It spins way too much because you know, we're not thinking about what the number we're just factoring the number in on the golf club. We're not looking at the actual specs. And at the end of the day, like the golf, the, just like the loft on a driver doesn't matter. Just kind of like your, to your point, a three wood doesn't have to be a three wood. The three wood can be quote unquote, the longest fairy wood in your bag. That's not your driver it can have any loft on it. It doesn't really matter. And loft is just a factor of fitting based on the performance characteristics of the golf club. So if, because I've had people, again, I get, I do Instagram questions as well. You know, we, we did this on the fully equipped uh, Instagram page. And if you make it to, if you don't make it strong enough, it's going to go way too high and you're going to start losing distance. That's why you have to actually crank them stronger because the center gravities are so low that they're good. They're designed to just fly super high. And I mean, I've got a set of old Wilson blades. They are, they are half an inch shorter than considered standard golf club. The pitching wedge is like 51 degrees on the, these things. I carry a two iron in the set, which I think is only 20 degrees. It's 20 degrees and it's 38 and a half inches long. Like this is not a two iron. It's a modern day, you know, four or five iron really in reality. And so, but it still launches pretty low because of the center gravity's high. It's an old school blade. And yeah, I can hit my modern day five iron further, but it's not just a factor of loft because they have, let's say close to the same amount of loft on it. Or, you know, four iron has the same amount of loft on it, but it's what that, what the technology inside the club head does. So to everyone that asks for those traditional looking golf clubs or those big techie golf clubs with like traditional loss, just get the freaking gap wedge already and everyone be happy and we're all done. And we don't need to have this conversation ever again. Well said. I concur. I have said, I, I don't really need to add anything else. RBU's freaking. That's probably about the, the worst language you're ever going to hear from them. That's the worst you'll ever hear on a microphone in front of me. Yeah, that's true. Don't get me onto the golf course. <laughs> All right. Next question. What if you are somebody who wants to play graphite on your irons, but steel in your wedges? Is that acceptable in your eyes, boys? What do you find you fit players any. to, Chris? I, I don't have any issue with it whatsoever. We've got graphite in the irons and steel in the wedges. And if you're a player that is just hitting those touch and feel shots, flighted wedges, knockdowns, looking for numbers rather than just, you know, take a wedge and full swing guy. And I don't have any issue throwing steel in a wedge. I mean, if it helps you with feel and consistency and you like the added weight, then I say, go for it. I don't have any issue with that. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I concur. <laughs> fully, fully equipped seal of approval. Let's just say that. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. If, wedges are are all about feel you're not going to hit i mean short of you know your gap wedge you're probably not hitting the other wedges in your bag with full swing 
It's going to be a lot of three quarters and, and touch shots around the green. So yes, if you feel like staying with steel in your wedges offers you a bit more feel around the greens and kind of similar to like I was talking about with going to, you know, a, a 41 and a half inch shaft in the fairway wood and how that mentally made me feel better as I stood over the ball. If having steel in your wedges gives you that same feeling, it's almost like a placebo effect. Go with it. I mean, I, there's no reason that you have to play the same shaft through the bag. You know, we've talked about that a lot of guys will play X1s in their in their irons and S4s in the wedges. Kind of view it the same way. You know, if you want to go graphite in your irons and steel in your wedges, have at it. My, my only thing would be is if you're using ultralight graphite shafts, like we were talking 70 and lighter. Yes. It's yep. probably at that point, you probably want to start looking at something that maybe 80 to 90 grams in graphite or go That's to a, a lighter point. weight steel. But for a, from a field perspective, the 90 gram or 80 gram graphite is probably the better way to go. Just make sure you're watching the flexes because some companies, um, as the weights progress in graphite, they get like quite a bit progressively stiffer. So either you'll, you'll go up and wait and then soft step a couple of times. Or you'll just have to pay attention to making sure you're, you're using the right, say, quote unquote, wedge flex that matches the rest of your set so they don't feel exponentially heavier or stiffer, especially from the stiffer side of things. But if, if you do happen to be using lighter weight graphite, it's probably better to be using that mid to midweight graphite in the wedges. But if you're, you know, from midweight to heavier weight graphite steel, there's no problem at all. All right. It's the age old gear question that I've heard from so many. I'm sure you've both heard it as well. Which are you going to get more bang for your buck with going and getting fit for clubs or getting lessons? Ooh, uh, I'll say, I'm going to say both. I mean, lessons are always good. Um, but getting just a, just even a typical if, if you, fence sitter right here, folks, if you're, if you're folks. just a beginner getting lies and lofts on your irons and, and length is like, the three L's get those checked if you're just a beginner, cause that's going to make a big difference just for getting in the right posture. And then you can work with the coach and then go from there and go back to getting some clubs. Um, but I think there's nothing wrong with working them in conjunction, right? It's like, you know, it's like, should I learn to ride a, should I ride my bike or wear my helmet? <laughs> you know, like you probably should do both <laughs> if you're going to be doing it. Right. So, um, that's, I mean, that's, again, that's how I kind of look at it, but I think, you know, from a, from more from a fitting side of things, um, I don't know how many times I used to hear it so, so often. So I'm really curious to like, understand wh like, where you come from this, Chris is like, I, I would say 40 to 50% of the people I used to work with would come and be like, oh, I'm working on some like coach and I get fit right now. I'm like, yeah. Like, I mean, I've been, I, I've been, I, my swing has changed. My club speed has changed, but my iron specs and shafts other than like a few, maybe like here or there's like have basically stayed the exact same for close to 10 years. Now I've gained, again, gained speed, changed dynamics, but everything else is better. And I have not changed my irons. So people are concerned like, Oh, is this going to make a massive difference? Unless something dramatic has changed. I don't think you're going to see a huge, huge shift. You will see it with delivery of drivers and ferry woods a lot of times, but I don't think with iron, something like that is a big, big stretch, but I'm really curious where you come. Cause I'm sure you hear that all the time. Oh, I'm working with my coach on this. Is it a good time to be doing this or not? So I'm always going to default to who do you have in front of you? So if you have somebody that is a brand new beginning golfer to where airborne and forward is a victory, I may default and say, let's spend a little bit of time with a coach, develop a general understanding of what the golf swing is and kind of finding who you are as a player 
when it comes to just developing a swing. If we have somebody that's been playing for a while, is taking lessons, but you identify relatively quickly that the likelihood of them practicing or making any real big uh, dynamic changes with their swing is probably not going to happen. There's definitely an opportunity to provide a good quality fitting and change that player's, I mean, golf life. So, I mean, I always kind of relate it to if you come and see me and you have a 60, 70, 80 plus yard slice, and I find a shaft and head combination that now taking how it is that you naturally move the golf club and how you naturally deliver it through impact. And now you produce a 15 to a 20 yard slice. Are you going to play better golf? Most people would say yes. So if I'm able to find club combinations that complement what it is that you do naturally, and all I do is build you a golf club and I don't have to reinvent the wheel with how you swing the club, but you produce more consistent and more repeatable golf shots, that's going to make that player play better. So, I mean, it really comes down to objectively who you are as a player and what your objectives are. If you're going to be a, a range rat and just sit there and beat balls and work with your coach and actually practice what it is that you're working on, then you know, maybe go the lesson route. If you're a brand new beginning player working with a coach to get started out of the gate, definitely a good thing. But if you're somebody that you know you work with your coach you know, once every two weeks, once a month, and you don't practice in between lessons, uh, I'm going to find you something better with a fitting and good golf clubs. I say when it comes to the golf industry and, and you know, the, the three people that or two people that get lied to the most are, you know, it's kind of like, and then outside of the golf industry, it's uh, it's your dentists, your doctors, your club fitters, and your coaches. <laughs> it's like, how often do you brush your teeth? Oh, every, twice a day, three times a day after every meal. No, you don't. <laughs> how do you, do you, or you go to your doctor. It's like, do you exercise? So you, you have a healthy diet, right? It's like, Oh, all the time. You know, I mean, I get drinks on just on weekends or whatever and all that stuff. And then you go to a club fitter and it's like, you practice your swing. Do you work with your coach? I go to the range like once a week. It's like, no, I can see your grips are never even used or worn. Like you never go to the range. Like that's where I think it's, it's, it's the, it's, it's almost a little bit on the onus of the, of the person doing the, on the other side of it, who's offering the service being like, look, let's, let's be honest. And then this this is kind of, I think I know there's a question later on about like talking to your fitter, but communication is key. Just be honest, especially when you're in a fitting, they're not there to judge you. And I, I'll credit someone who, um, always had a good quote, like, you're not there to impress the club fitter. The club fitter is there to impress you. Like the club fitter is there to give you better, go better golf game. You're not there to like show off or do anything. It's like, just come with what you got, bring it, bring it in house. And like, we're going to help you find the best that we're going to do because, uh, you know, lying and, 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 or, you know, telling some falsehood about your golf game and saying you're a six when you're really a 12 or whatever it happens to be. Uh, Vanity I never see handicaps, Vanity yeah, handicaps. Don't be a judge smells and say like, oh, I never sliced and then smoke four into the woods and be like, no, I looked at your club path and face relationship, man. I don't think you've ever hit the left side of the fairway. Like, like don't lie about these things and you're going to be much further off through the process. So. It's great words to live by right there, folks. It, it is true. So many golfers go in and lie about where they're at with their game. Don't do that. Just admit it. Admit that you suck. Admit that you're in a dark place with your game and a club fitter will help you out. But if you tell them that you're, striping it and you know like rb said never never hit a certain part of the fairway or the rough and then all of a sudden you start doing the opposite i've seen every thing. inch of every golf course so <laughs> yeah I think, I think we all have all right oh so yeah definitely combo iron sets are very popular on tour we're starting to see a lot of manufacturers offering 
the ability to blend different models in a particular series, which then brings up the question, how do I know where to combo a set of irons? So essentially where, where do you break them and go from one model to the next? Chris, I'm going to leave this all up to you because you're the one who works with customers a lot more than me. Sure. I can tell you the, uh, the direction that I generally go with that conversation is where is it in the set composition that you start to struggle? So if you have confidence in the seven iron, for example, but as soon as you transition into that six iron and now you're going, I went from trying to knock the pin down to let's just get it on the putting surface. Yeah, that's where I'm going to kind of make the suggestion. I think this is where we make that transition into the more forgiving iron. So if I have somebody that is a good short iron player, good wedge player, good ball striker up to that transitional period, six to seven, five to six, whatever the case may be, that's where the recommendation is going to come to, to maybe start that blended set. That's a good point. I like that. I got nothing else to say. Tell everybody behind you to keep it down, Chris. We're, we're doing a podcast right now. It's very important. Oh, buddy. We, we have construction at 100% at the new Scottsdale studio here. And we've got inspections going on. We've got the, the fire it's marshal here doing our... It is. It's the crazy. Fire marshal. It's crazy. We should get him on yeah. the podcast. Get his take on, uh, on Live versus the PGA Tour and... <laughs> Yeah, in, in I mean, if he's a gear. golfer, I could, I yeah, could wave him yeah, over here, see if he sure. wants to make a little cameo. There we go. All right, uh, next question. I have 15 clubs in my set. What's the best way to bring it down to 14 for tournaments? Well, 15, first and foremost, is is not legal. But, again, practice rounds and, and rounds of your buddies. You can carry as many clubs as you want as long as you're okay with getting roasted for having an extra one in the bag. I, I think for most players, you know, if, if you know the golf course, and I think really it comes down to the simple fact of like maybe where where are you playing? Uh, Jonathan, you touched on it you know, really, really almost like perfectly is, you know, you're playing where it's nice and dry and out in Texas or you're playing Lynx golf in the middle of summer in Scotland and you haven't had rain in three weeks, which I guess is, I mean, even then it's still a rarity in Scotland. But you, you just want to look at what your course conditions are because if you need to hit a high, maybe you take out that longer iron and keep the extra wedge in because you want to have something that goes a little higher or, you know, you take out a wedge because you want that, that one shot that runs out a long way and having some time on a launch monitor can be helpful. But I think most players who are going to be that in tune with their golf clubs, it's best to just fine tune it to the, to the course that you're playing. And like, I know there's a couple of courses near me where I could probably take out four, like six clubs out of my bag because I'm never going to hit them. I'm just going to driver and hit these wedges or hit a fairway maybe off this tee. But other than that, like five wood, it's, I, have, I have a five wood that maybe comes out once every couple rounds. I still have it because it's important to me. But like if I really have that distance, but I don't find that I have that distance on many golf courses because the yardages that I play and the style of course that I play. And I think for a lot of golfers, if you just critically look at that, it's pretty easy to make that decision, especially when you you know the courses that you're going to play if you've either played there before, or you know the conditions that you're you're going, especially from a tournament perspective, the conditions you're looking at going in. If you're going to be really windy, you look at the forecast, you're like, probably not a good idea to have that seven wood in play. So that's how I would do it. All right. What do you consider a playable driver spin axis tilt for a stock shot? 
Ooh, I like this one because I'm a big cutter of the golf ball. And I know that if I look at my numbers, his face on this question, he was like, what, what the hell is this question right here? Uh, this one is from, this one is from RB. RB wrote this one. I was, I was going to wonder, I mean, uh, I don't know if I've ever taken a launch monitor on the golf course and, you know, and, and found the perfect shot and went, that's it. That's my spin access. That's what I'm shooting for off the tee. Every time. That's the the golden window. The last time somebody so, asked Chris this question during a fitting, he beat him with the launch monitor. So some background on this question, because uh, I did reach out to the person that asked it in our fully equipped uh, over on our Instagram page, is um, like what is considered playable from not necessarily a stock shot, but like a shot shape. Like you were saying, Chris, if someone is really, really slicing the golf ball and they have no, from I know foresight can measure it in um, like side slide. People equate it to side spin. The golf ball does not spin sideways; it spins on an on an axis tilt, like a plane tilting as it's flying through the air. Can you say that again, a little louder for everybody in the back? I I don't think they heard that side spin is not a thing. Side spin does not exist. A golf ball will, or any golf any ball sport, the golf the ball will only spin on one axis, and it is tilting like an airplane to rotate and go in that direction. So a golf ball is not spinning in, on two axes. It can only spin on one. Uh, and so when you're fat, when you're factoring that into play, how much tilt is there in the plane to like have a controllable shot? Cause I think if you look at someone who really slices the ball and they're at an exaggeration, you would say they're at 20 and you can get them down to 10. That's a huge improvement. That's a, you know, 50 or hundred percent improvement, however you want to do the math on it. So, because um, the thing that a lot of people are scared of is zero because when you're actually at zero, then you can go both miss both ways. And that's not good either. And you know, I, I figured out a long time ago when I first got onto a track and I was like, Oh man, let's zero out, let's zero out, let's zero out. And then realize, Oh God, I can miss everywhere. <laughs> and learning to understand like which direction it's going to go. I know that I I'm like five degrees almost, I think in my driver, it's like a little bit of tilt, but would you say when someone comes into you and they are at, two or three, are you trying to keep them there? Or if they're, is, if they're at seven, are you trying to get them down? Like, what is it, where's your window there when you're trying to dial in, say just a driver, for example, on someone to get a, a playable trajectory? That's without actually calling it what it is during the interview process, I will ask, do you have a preferred shot shape? What is your miss? You know, when you miss it, is it starting on your intended start line and moving away from the target one way or another? Is it you know, staying straight and falling a particular direction? And from there, it's kind of answering that question as to why. So, I mean, if I have somebody that is, to your point, 20 degrees and I get them down to 10, are they going to play better golf? Yes, I would say the majority of the time that they are. Now, as far as a, an ideal parameter, I mean, it really just kind of depends on how much control you have over your ball. So, I mean, if you're somebody that drags the handle left and hangs the face open and hits that kind of squeeze cut or somebody that hangs back and flips it at the bottom and hits, you know, a big push draw or a push hook, whatever the case may be. Now, if I take that away from you and your start line completely changes and the, the visual that you have of how your ball moves down range changes, you know, that could potentially be just as detrimental as you know, having a, a 20 degree axis tilt. So, I mean, it really just kind of depends on what it is that that player visualizes and what they see in relationship to their ideal ball flight and their preferred launch window. So I don't want to change a player's shot shape 
but I will help to get it more consistent and help to eliminate a miss on one side of the golf course or another, if that's what they're objectively looking for. Uh, yeah, that's very well said. It's kind of like I, I posted this on, um, posted on Twitter the other day, um, was my, my clubs built my, like my own specs. I didn't give any context to this whole thing. I just said, what's wrong with these specs or what's right or wrong with these specs. And if you look Sorry. at my eye, if you look at my irons from my, basically from my gap wedge to my I think six iron, they're all at 60 degrees lie angle. People are like, Oh, is it, is it like, is it a one length set? Is it this, is it that? And I'm like, it, and people are like, Oh, it's wrong because of this, or it's wrong because of that. I'm like, I built a lot of golf clubs for myself over the long period of time. And I know that my hands get really low with my short irons and it's the shot that I like to hit. And that's what works for me. And, you know, no one's, someone, no one's going to come in and say that's wrong and you should bend them this way. Because if I do that, I'm going to start pulling all my short irons really badly. So it helps me hit straighter shots, in my long irons and more of the, the straighter to fade shots with my, my short irons, which I prefer. And that's why I do it. Is it wrong? No, but someone else could look at that and say, that's really bad. But I know my, to your point, I think this is a, a good, really good thing that you, you said was like start line, looking up and knowing where your golf ball is going to start, however, be relatively straight left or right of your intended target is huge for confidence. And a lot of times that's the one thing that you don't want to change for a player. You want to help control where it ends relative to the target, but you know, where it starts is a huge one because no one's going to, no one was ever going to train Kenny Perry to start the golf ball left of his target. There's, there's not a, there's, there, no, it's just not going to happen. And, and you're never really never going to get VJ Singh to start one right and have it come back. So it's, you know, every player has their tendency. And I think that's a, it's a really good point because you no, know, you know, if someone, if a fitter is trying to do that, you know, maybe just ask why and explain. Cause I think that's a big one. It part comes down to the communication is you want to ask why, because a fitter, a really good fitter should not be trying to do that. They should be trying to control and make it better versus, you know, trying to overhaul something because as we touched on earlier, a complete overhaul is probably not going to be the best option when it comes to like a club fitting, just to like change your ball flight. We're trying to make it better. But if, you know, if you're going to go from a draw to a fade with, because you, you completely whacked up the specs of a golf club in one club in your set, not a good idea. All right. Before we hit the Last three questions in this mailbag edition. I want to let you know that this week's edition of Fully Equipped is brought to you by Fairway Jockey. We talk about custom clubs all the time on the pod, and we're often asked, where is the best place to buy custom clubs? For us, the answer is easy because one place offers the lowest prices on custom-built clubs, and that's fairwayjockey.com. Do your homework. No one beats their prices. You'll save up to 15%, and when you're talking about a bigger ticket purchase like clubs, that can add up in big savings. Build your custom set today at fairwayjockey.com. Yeah, and there's my dog in the background. That's what happens when you have a six-month-old puppy. Enzo making his presence known. All right. Enzo, Enzo is that named after the Fujikura high-speed camera system? Uh, it, it, it is not. It's named after Enzo Ferrari. He, he's an Italian water dog, so we, we figured oh, okay. an, Italian, an Italian name. Yeah, I like it. He wants out of this this place. He's done listening to us talk about gear, but on to the next question. Hybrid versus driving iron. This is a popular one. What are the benefits for certain players and have at it? My biggest separators, uh, club head speed. If you're a faster club head speed player, there's almost a guarantee you're going to prefer the, uh, the driving iron versus the hybrid. 
Um, if you are someone that is say down into the ball as well, probably the, the driving iron versus the hybrid. Uh, but I think speed is the biggest factor in that because as far as the ability to hit certain shots, and I actually, I've just been testing this recently with the DHY versus the, the, um, what's the other one called the DHY and the UDI. There we go. I know I'll figure it out. I'll figure out the initials either way, but the driving iron versus the bigger driving club. Um, the dynamics are very different and the way I kind of swing them to make, to make them perform the way I would like to perform is very different. Like the stealth UDI, I hit it like an iron. The other one, I kind of sweep it a little bit more. It even has, even the specs are the UD or the DHY is longer in spec. So naturally you're going to swing it shallower. And I think that's the biggest one, but I think, you know, Club at speed to me is the biggest factor when it comes to that. Club head speed is definitely a huge factor. I mean, we actually just did a uh, did an independent test with this uh, high speed player versus uh, average versus kind of an intermediate, and it was interesting. What we had found was the the high speed player saw better, more consistent results with the hybrid, whereas me, low launch, low spin guy had better results with kind of that UDI type of driving iron club. So it was what would have worked on paper was the exact opposite when it came to practical application for us in real life. I hit the driving iron better and I struggled with hybrids with a lower launch, shockingly, and a left miss. But the lower launch was at equal loft, a result of just kind of head design and lack of spin that DHY actually spun the ball a little bit more for me and gave me more control over the ball. Yeah. It's always comes down to the practical application, right? I mean, we can, we can sit here and, and kind of spitball, but I think obviously testing these things is, is really important, but um, I think you make a good point of the face, like face contact, right? I know I'm a shallower player, so I benefit from a, um, a, a like an iron style versus if I'm shallow with a hybrid, I just hit low stinking bullets. I can't get it up in the air. Whereas if I, I mean, if I have this, yeah, we're waving each at each other here. We sit, we fit in the same ballpark, but if you are also shallow, like I can hit a seven would pretty good, but I tend to spin it a little bit, quite a bit more, but it's again, it can still be helpful, but I, I do get a little bit more high spin because I I'm shallow, but I hit it low on the face. So for me, that, that high spin seven wood, I can hit, I can hit a seven wood and make it come down like a, like a marshmallow from a hundred and, 95 yards if I really want to. It's not a shot that I'd probably that helpful on a golf course, but it can be done. I don't do it because I don't carry that golf club, but I find that in testing. So that's where when you look at the the progression of those gapping golf clubs at the top of your bag, making sure you get the right ones and not just say, oh, I should use this because it said it says I should use this is uh is why it's so important to you know find the right one for sure. All right. If you're gonna get a fitting you're going to start with one of these. Would you start with a driver fitting first or a putter fitting first? I was, I always like this one. Cause like it, I default back to stats. Um, and that is you'll never, not never. I think I've, I feel like I used this exact line like a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this, but you're almost never going to take a penalty shot by hitting a putt poorly. You hit a driver poorly. You've given up 220, 230, 240, 300 yards off the tee. Um, and you've lost a shot. So driver is from a strokes gain perspective, a huge, huge, huge advantage. And then the putting is more of a scoring club where, you know, dialing it in can make a big, big difference. But I think what most people struggle with is learning how to read a, read a damn green. 
I concur. Yeah. I, I would agree. <laughs> I would totally agree with that. It's funny because I, even like a year or so ago, I probably would have said putter, but uh, maybe it's because I just have been abysmal with the driver of late. But if you can, if you have a driver that you can just get out there in the fairway or at least keep it in play where you have a shot at the green more often than not. And as you, as you mentioned, RB, you're not handing it into the junk or OB or into a hazard. I mean, that's huge. And that seems to be one of those golf clubs that, that a majority of weekend golfers struggle with majority of weekend golfers can't hit a driver consistently. And that's where they end up losing a lot of strokes. So yeah, I would agree. If you're going to go and, and get fit for one first, do driver fitting, but then maybe do a putter fitting right after it. When you look at stats and, and using whatever game tracking device they use, I use, I use Arcos and, um, I, there's a, there's a, there's a single hole on a golf course nearby where I play a lot and it's on the card. It's like 300 yards, it's 300 yards in the middle of the fairway. And then it cuts across. There's this big body of water, basically over a lake. It's like a mini version of that hole Bryson drove on, uh, at uh, Bay Hill a couple of years ago. And really to the center of the green, it's like 260. Right. And before I gained a little bit of speed, like hitting it there was kind of like hit or miss, right? Like I'm scared to try and hit this shot in any type of condition beyond downwind. And I'd always think to myself, okay, just hit over there, like miss right of the green and then chip a wedge up. Now I basically like, I don't even think of that fairway. I just literally go for the green every single time because I know that I'm not going to lose a shot. Even if I get it around the green or on the green, I have the potential to like basically in theory, the worst I'm going to make is a par, you know, but I give myself a chance for Eagle or birdie or like at worst case scenario par, you know, hopefully most of the time, if I look at, st- at stats, but if you are, if you don't drive it that far, you don't drive it that well, even if you just hit the fairway, you still have a, a less likely chance of like hitting the green. And the next, then that kind of becomes exponential. And that's where the driver fitting, I kind of use that hole as an example. When I talk about like strokes gained and why it's so important to drive the ball well, because you know, if you can't get to the green, it doesn't matter how well you cut because the likelihood of making putts outside 10 feet is, is still like relatively low for even the average golfer, even good players. So knowing that you can save shots by not losing strokes off the tee for a, you know, an 18 handicap is massive. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize. And that's why fitting studios put such an emphasis on, on driver fittings because they make such a huge difference to people's games. Plus it's fun to say you hit it further, but it does add up down the fairway. And that, that that's why I think, you know, it is such a crucial golf club to get to for. Saving the best for last. What are the top three things to do and ask going into a fitting? I Can I just, and I'll, I'll throw out my, my one for this list and then you guys can have at it. Make sure that you practice before you go to a fitting. It, I mean, RB's over here kind of, kind of laughing a little bit, but I, you spend the money to go get fit. Why would you show up having maybe hit golf balls like once in the last like couple of months? That's, I mean, that's not, that's not your normal swing. That's, that's a swing. You're knocking off the rust still. So make sure that you're not doing a cram session the night before just to try and figure it out. Go spend at least a week a week prior to your fitting, try and get out and, and hit balls, you know, say three times and just 
try and find your tempo, get your swing back to where you feel a bit more comfortable. Maybe you can get nine holes in, but yes, yes, please go. You're, you'll, you'll save yourself some embarrassment and you'll actually help your fitter out too, because they'll be able to see what they're really working with. I think that's a, that's a good point. The reason I chuckle is because my, my warning was don't go hit two large buckets of golf balls the day before and think you're all going to get it in. Cause you're going to yeah. come to the, come to your fit the next day and be sore and and not really likely going to perform that well. Um, so that, that is definitely something from a prepare, prepare perspective. Um, cause I mean, we see it in Canada all the time. People get fit early season. Uh, sure it's not a problem in Arizona as much, but they, you know, they come in and they're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just pulled the clubs out of the garage. I haven't swung ball like two months. I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> no offense. Like we're going to take your money. I don't, I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like you're here to get fit. We're going to do what best we can. But like in reality, we think like you're not helping yourself. Like man, woman, junior golfer, it doesn't matter. You're not helping yourself by just coming in completely cold after months and months of layoffs. So I think you make a really good point, but also, you know, just like studying for a test, don't do a cram session the night before come on, come in like uh, Andy in the office. I always like that clip where he's like, yeah, I hit like two large buckets of balls. I was really excited to play today. And I'm like, that's not a good idea. Um, but uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's one of my biggest things. Um, and then just communicating properly. I already said this earlier, but communication is such a big thing. Uh, but that's, that's from my perspective. So I'll let, I'll let Chris, as the guy who works with more golfers than anyone here, I'll let you, I'll let you fin- handle the rest of this out. And for me, the biggest component of what you can do to prepare is just have a clear understanding of objectively what it is you want to get out of the fitting. So if there are particular objectives or goals that you as a player have that you would like to see accomplished by making a gear change I mean, being able to communicate those to your fitter. And I mean, just from a preparation standpoint, I mean, understand you're going to hit a lot of golf balls. So don't come in with no sleep the night before. Make sure that you are hydrated and ready to go like you're playing a round of golf. I mean, essentially, if you equate the number of swings to the number of shots that you take during the the round of golf, I mean, you're going to play two, potentially three rounds of golf with the amount of swings that you're going to take in a fitting. So, I mean, having an opportunity to just prepare your body for that, eating a decent meal, bringing a snack, having you know, something to drink and a clear understanding of objectively, why are you here? That helps us a ton. What about uh, from a budgetary standpoint, Chris? I mean, it, it feels like golfers that I talk to, they go get fit. They're always, you know, I shouldn't say always, but sometimes they come out grumbling. You know, it feels like I always get fit for the, you know, what they're claiming to be the most expensive shaft and, and head combo, it, you know, there, well, of course they're going to try and get me that one. Cause they're just trying to, to make money off me. I mean, what we, we talk about like making sure that you're prepared, but, but it also, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it's important also to let your fitter know if you're, if you're on a budget and you're trying to get, you know, these clubs in this certain price point, you need to let them know up front so they can sort of work within those constraints as well. They're not mind readers. And the budget question is always an uncomfortable topic to have. I mean, nobody likes to talk about it. It's, it's definitely a conversation that has to be had though. 
And I can tell you that the way that I communicate it to people is that uh, I'm not motivated by a commission structure that pushes me to sell a higher price golf club. So I will ask my client straight away, is there a budget that we're trying to stick to? Because last thing I want to do is find a shaft and head combination that you absolutely fall in love with. Then we get to the end of the fitting and we have sticker shock because we have blown the budget out of the water. And I'll communicate to my client that, you know, let's just take driver, for example. That's, you know, the most common fitting that people come in for. And if you look at our OEM partners that have, let's just say, a price tag of $549.99 on the cost of that head, that's what they're going to charge you with a stock shaft at any golf shop in the country that you go into. Now, if we look at our fitting matrix where we have over 50,000 different shaft and head combinations we can snap together, and there's 100 plus driver shafts sitting on the wall looking at you. Now, the average high-end shaft is going to be in that neighborhood of 300 to 350 plus dollars. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have an option that would work for you in that 100 to 150 price category, but if I don't have a budget to work with, I'm going to look for the best combination I can put together for you, regardless of price. So having that conversation right out of the gate means we have a $650 or $700 driver, or potentially a $1,200 or $1,300 driver, just depending upon where our budget is with shaft alone, because we're already on the hook for that $550 from the manufacturer, no matter what. Now it's just how much do we want to spend on the right shaft and a quality build. Yeah, and I, and that's I think that's that's a huge part of it because when it comes to the the shaft question or when players are looking at a budget, it's to me again the communication side of this thing is always the most important element. Uh, if you're listening out there and you're still you're hanging around for the last part of the question, last part of the question here, you got to think that this is your fitting. So communicate. If you feel doubt, bring it up. Because I think that's one of the things, because I can say it's, it's always frustrating as a fitter to get like emails after and be like, why didn't you ask this in the fitting? And that's what you think, because it's like, I am there to communicate to you. I am the, I'm the, I am the person providing the service, right? And I know everyone does it. Everyone leaves their doctor and goes, I should have asked that question, or I should have asked this, or, I should have done that. And everyone will have those, those questions. But if you feel them in the moment, take the time to ask them, because I think that is, is really the most important element. And from the budget side of things, I mean, there are even, there's options to go the stock route if someone's really kind of like looking to stay within a very a small budget as well or whatever. Like I, I say small, but you know, golf clubs are not inexpensive and that's not over my head at all by any means. So um, when we have these, these conversations about, you know, if you're curious about why someone's pulling something, just ask why, like, why, like, why are you choosing this one over that one? Cause it's always good to be more educated as a consumer as well. Uh, but you know, I can think of lots of times where, you know, people have come in like, oh, I don't care. I don't, especially, and I can, I can, you know, just to use this as an example, like at the time, like when PXG came out, they were the most expensive irons on the market by a large margin in most fitting shops. And people were like, I have no budget. I really want to try them. You're like, okay, cool. So like you go out and you're like, wow, these, these feel great. They look good. They, they're so cool. They're new. They're whatever. And here's your graphite shaft and here's your, your fancy grip. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me these irons are 3,800, like Canadian, $3,800, $4,000. It's like, what are you talking about? It's like, you didn't tell, you asked to try them. Don't ask to, like, again, you can test drive anything you want, right? Like, but don't go to the Ferrari dealership and expect to get a Honda Accord. <laughs> like, it's, it's, I just, I, I always say, I, I use car analogies a lot, but that's really what it comes down to. Like, you know, I made the joke the other day. Like I saw an ad on Instagram for a, um, a used spider Porsche. First of all, Instagram's got their algorithms way wrong because they're targeting me. <laughs> but 
I'm not going out of my way to go to the Porsche dealership to try this million dollar car out when, you know, I'm not looking to spend that on a vehicle. Right. So it's important to know what and where you're going and, and all those different things and, and communication at the end of the day, communication is the most important thing, whether it be with your fitter, your partner, your doctor, we've talked about this a lot today, your, your shoe salesman, your car guy, whoever it happens to be, the more you're open and back and forth, the most you're going to get out of that relationship either way. And hopefully it means you're going to play better golf. That was an hour, a solid hour, just ripping through gear questions. We got through 12 of them, which I think is probably a record for an hour and change fully equipped. So I think it's probably a good place to end it. But as usual, boys, that was a lot of fun, insightful. We're going to get a lot of messages from people saying we should be doing mailbags on a more regular basis. We always say we will. But now that RB's at the helm of the social media accounts and he's Mr. Gear Questions, I think we will actually get around to doing more of these mailbags. So appreciate the insights from everybody. And that will do it for episode 154, Fully Equipped. As usual, if you want more gear news, you can always check us out on social media. We are at Fully Underscore Equipped on Twitter and at Fully Equipped Golf on Instagram. Thanks as always for listening. We hope you made we hope we made you smarter with this episode maybe hopefully we'll see you next week